Welcome to Mercy Fellowship. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, And here at Mercy Fellowship, we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. That means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And it is just a, a joy to get to be with you guys here this morning. Um, all summer long, uh, we are just kind of hitting different psalms. And so this, this book that was given to God's people uh, to help understand how our souls should, should sing to the Lord. And, and how we are to think and feel and process various emotions and different experiences, right? And, and just like music has a broad range of uh, genres, so do the Psalms themselves. And today, we're going to be in Psalm 51. Um, but actually, you know, I, I was off last week, so you're kind of going to get two sermons for the price of one today. Because we're going to start in, in uh, first Samuel, rather, Second Samuel chapter 11, Because as we get to Psalm 51, right, some songs are just, you know, kind of general in what their meaning is. But if you look through the Psalms occasionally, it'll say things like, um, this song was written on the occasion that David was being pursued by Saul. Or this song was written in in response to this thing that happened. In this case, Psalm 51, this this song that is how we deal with and and process and understand uh, the concept of sin, it it actually refers to um, a time when David was with Bathsheba. And so I think it's really important if we're going to read about the song that we should know what's kind of like VH1 back in the day had behind the music. This is the behind the music. And so um, it helps us to understand um, how, uh, like, as we're singing these songs, as we're trying to learn about the Psalms, that really they're all about Jesus. And so if the songs are about Jesus, then we need to know why we need Jesus in the first place. Because I think there's times that we think about Jesus a little bit, like just kind of like a guy with some nice ideas, or maybe he was a religious leader, but we need to remember that first and foremost, Jesus is our Savior and Jesus is our King. And if He's our Savior, we have to understand what we're being saved from. And so we need to start with a place of contrition, a place of humility, a place of recognizing uh, our, our need. Our disposition matters here, that, that sin is actually something that's distorted the way we sing about everything. It separates us from God, it separates us from people, it separates us from each other. And if it's not resolved, then we live these lives that that are kind of dissonant. And ultimately it will lead to to destruction. And so, before we get to 2 Samuel 11, I also want us to recognize that I believe that our greatest need at all times at any given time is communion with the God who made us. And so there's a whole bunch of other things that are important and helpful, and even I'd say necessary, but the essential thing that each and every one of us needs and craves is communion, relationship with the God who made us. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11 as we see this song written by David, and as we understand why David wrote this song and what it meant for him, I hope that we can see how it applies to us as well. So uh, we're going to break this up into a few sections. First one, verses 1 through 5. So we're going to do a little Old Testament story time. Second Samuel chapter 11 says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged uh, Rabab, and David remained at Jerusalem. It happened 
late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, um, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came, and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. And so here we are, kind of set the scene. David's a king. His, his country is, is fighting for, for independence and for all sorts of different things, right? And there's all these godless nations around them. And, and it says very specifically that this is the time when kings go to battle. But where's David? He's not fighting. He's at home. So while Israel is, it says, ravishing all these other nations, like big time victory, like, like Team USA basketball, Dream Team 92 style victory, right? Like they are just routing other nations and David's back at home. He's vacated his role to lead, to guard, to protect. He's called to be a king and, and to engage with the mission of God's people to, to help produce a, a nation that should lead to flourishing, but instead he's in comfort and complacency. And when it says all of Israel's out, we're talking every able-bodied man has been drafted to go out and fight these battles. And there's David, back home, sleeping in, He's bored. He's idle. I want to be clear, like, like, later today, I hope to take a nap. You want to take a nap later today? There's nothing wrong with that at all. But there's a season and a time for everything. And, and verse 1 starts right away and says, this is the time when kings go to battle. He's supposed to have purpose, and instead, he's just seeking pleasure. And he's, he's there. He's napping late afternoon. He gets up from his couch. He's looking around for something to do. He's bored. And, and what happens when you get kind of idle, right? When you get bored, you know, you go to the refrigerator three or four or five times. And then, you know, eventually things start to look better there than they did when they first started, right? So he's, he's bored, he's idle, he wants to be filled, he's, he's pursuing something to, to tempt him, to, to, to kind of stimulate him in some way. And we see kind of a cycle of temptation that happens right away when it comes to actual sin. It says that he looks and he notices. And I want to be clear, that's not sin. He's up, he looks around, and he's like, oh, but maybe that second look, that fourth look, the time where he's starting to study, become aware of who that is. What's, what I think is interesting too is like, if David's got a rooftop deck, he probably knows where the ladies bathe at. And he's like, I wanna go see what's going on over there. Anybody, anything happening, anything interesting? And then he's studying her and it says that she's very uh, uh, beautiful and awareness and observation quickly turns to investigation. And this is right where temptation, like, like hook on a bait, kind of starts to, to sink in a bit. He starts asking around. He's like, starts asking stuff. Hey, hey who, who's, down, who's down cleaning up down there? He starts to like, deep dive into it, right? He, he's clicked in. He's, he's selected the show. He's done whatever, right? He started to DM, right? And, and he's like, who's the women? And it says, oh, she's daughter of Eliam. Okay, you might not know this. David has what are called his mighty men. So there's 37 Israeli special forces, and Eliam's one of them. And he's like one of David's premier guys. And it's like, oh yeah, it's his daughter. Oh, by the way, also husband of Uriah, who's also one of David's like 37 special forces guys. And so he's like, um, 
She's part of the crew, man. You, you, you know her. She, like, like, remember when we had the Mighty Men staff barbecue? She was there. Like, you, you know who this is. And he's like, oh, okay, cool. Go get her. So the reality is she's not some anonymous person. Not that that matters. If you don't know, David's married not once but twice. He's got two wives. We don't, like, play that here. Um, okay, right? That's Old Testament, not. Um, uh, de- it's descriptive, not prescriptive of how marriage is to be. But he's already got two wives. He could have, like, I don't know, taken one of them out on a date, cultivated that relationship, and instead um, he's looking around, and he's fine with meeting this gal who's, who's in, like, basically family. And regardless of their relationship, the bottom line is she's not his. He's not hers. They're not for one another. And so David has a wife, like we said, he has two, and she's not either of them. And so you know that this is going to go badly here shortly. It's going to begin to impact many. And in this case, David doesn't have ignorance. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's very intentional about pursuing his sin. He's isolated. He's alone. He does what he wants, and he knows everything. He's been given all the information. Hey, it's your buddy's daughter. It's your other buddy's wife. Plenty of like opportunities to be like, never mind, closing the laptop. Never mind, I'm going to stop that DM. Never mind, I'm going to turn off the TV. Never mind, I'm going to close the refrigerator door. Never mind, I'm, I'm going to walk out of the casino, you know, whatever it is. And instead, he's just full throttle. Call her up, bring her up. He doesn't back out to shut it down. He says, cool, go get her. And, and he's allowed idleness of ignoring mission to be switched to purpose to engage and investigate pursuing sin. So he ultimately is not idle at all, right? He's made for a purpose. He's made to have passion to, to lead and to serve. And instead, he's, he's letting that go towards things that ultimately aren't profitable. He's passively ignoring his role, but he's actively defiling it as well. And what I love about these verses is it doesn't make a comment about her willingness. The reality is this is a power situation. David is the king of Israel. This is as me too as it gets. This is Epstein Island. And so here he is. He calls her up. Whether she's willing or not, it's irrelevant. Because you don't disobey the king when he calls. Think back to our series in Esther, right? Similar dynamic. Powers at play. We know what happens here. If you need a greater explanation, just read it a couple times, right? She does a walk of shame afterwards, goes back home. After a day, maybe two, maybe more, he thinks it's a fling. David's like, no harm, no foul. Like, I'm just the king. I'm just going to move on. And then a couple days later, David gets the text pregnant emoji from Bathsheba. And all of a sudden, he's like, this, this isn't just going to go away. This is going to have to be dealt with. This sin, let's call it what it is, sin is not going to be forgotten. There's going to be tangible evidence, right? Because a, a human life's been produced. There's a baby in there. His abuse or adultery or whatever you want to call it, I'm going to go with abuse, is going to get exposed. And so his response to the possibility of sin coming to light is not humility, contrition, but instead, shoot, how am I going to cover this up? 
Right, when we talked about 2 Corinthians 7, when it talks about godly grief versus worldly grief, that one leads to repentance and the other's just upset that he got caught, David's in that one. He's not interested in repentance. He's interested in maintaining his reputation. And so this plot begins to cover it up. He's so intentional in pursuing his sin and now he's gonna intentionally cover it up. Verses six through 13. So David sent word to Joab, that's the commander, right? Um, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how's the war going on? And then David said to Uriah, oh, um, go down to your house. For sure, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him uh, a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, um, Uriah didn't go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? And Uriah says to David, the ark of Israel, right? That's like the, the standard. That's where the law was kept. This is like the national identity. The ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booths. Those are tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat, to drink, and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today and also tomorrow and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him, that is Uriah, drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So David's got the plan, right? Dang, guy's wife's pregnant. Okay, let's call him back from the battlefield. He's been out at battle for a long time. He's going to want to come home, get a little home cooking. Nine months later, everything will be fine. Again, no harm, no foul. And so, and this is a simple plan. The only thing that goes wrong is Uriah's character. Like Uriah's unwavering sense of duty and honor and purpose. He's like, hey, David's like, hey, how's the battle going? Yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been, I've been watching that, uh, you know, on Insta story. Seems like it's kind of rough. And, and there's, there's Uriah. He's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of tough, man. Uh, he's like, hey, why don't you go hang out with your wife? And Uriah's like, how the heck can I do that? We're band of brothers. I've been fighting with these men. I know these men. How am I supposed to go home and hang out with my wife and just chill when all the guys I've been fighting with are in the battlefield? And even more, the the law of God, the the, the standard of our nation is, is in a tent out in the field saying, hey, this is where our nation is. This is where we're going. It's battle time. It's war time. How the heck am I supposed to sit back and have brisket and hang out with my baby? And so he won't do it. David's pursued self-indulgence at the expense of others. Uriah is a man of character and mission, so he's pursuing self-denial for the purpose of solidarity with the others. And so David's like, okay, all right, new plan. Let's just get him super drunk. Maybe, maybe that'll work. And so for a couple of days, David just pumps him full of food and drink And here we learn that Uriah is a better man drunk than David is sober. And he's unwavering. 
And he's like, no, I'm going to hang out with the servants outside. And, and, and I have to imagine for David, right, he's already feeling fear, shame, condemnation, right? Sins happened. He can't get away from that. His plan to cover it up is foiled by just a, a, a good dude, a guy with some character, a guy with some integrity. And all of a sudden, the contrast between what actual integrity and character and duty looks like compared to selfishness and pursuing pleasure and, and, and self-indulgence versus self-denial, the contrast can be started. And that's just, right, when you're in sin, right, when we have shame and you see somebody actually doing well, man, that just, that just hurts even more. And it should lead us to humility, right? It should lead us to a place of, of contrition. Instead, it just hardens David's heart anymore, even more. So the plan to have sin covered up fails and again, the response isn't confession, but instead turns to conspiracy for murder. Verses 14 through 17 says this. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell, meaning people died on this mission. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then uh, We're going to stop here. Stop here. The effort that David is taking to ensure that his sin is covered up is, is so like intense, right? Like imagine if David had put this much effort into leading his people to cultivating the relationship with his wife, to raising his family. But instead, all of this effort, all this energy, it, we're so intentional about our sin, we can get even more deranged in our efforts to cover, uh, cover it up. And, and at a certain point, what sin does to us is it just makes us callous to other people. We don't really care how it impacts other people. We only care about ourselves because sin at its heart is selfishness. And what's amazing, I mean, I, I, I just noticed it this last time reading through this this week. There are so many people who died in this ill-fated campaign, right? And it wasn't even like noble. It wasn't saving Private Ryan. It was killing Corporal Uriah. That was the whole mission, to make sure that Uriah died. And so sin can stay hidden for a time, but it always begins to surface and it, it starts to impact other people because sin never stays contained. And we're gonna see how it starts to impact the community because in these next verses, um, it, it says this, um, verse 25, and David said to the messenger, let me back up here. Yeah, so, uh, verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab sent to tell him. And the messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us. They came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. The archers shot at the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said this to the messenger in verse 25. Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city, overthrow it, and encourage him. Verse 26, and when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, is dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, number three, and bore him a son. 
But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so what's amazing about this, right? David gets the news. Joab's like, hey, things didn't go well. We lost some really good guys on this one. And Uriah's dead. And, and, and Joab is like rightly feeling some guilt, right? Because Joab, he, he's now a conspiracy to, to murder, right? He's an accomplice rather, right? And what sin loves like misery is company. And so David tells Joab, man, don't worry about it. The sword devours one or the other. Like, battle's really random. Except in this case, it was incredibly intentional how it went down. See, David's lying about the situation. He's trying to say, oh, it's just an accident that he died when it was planned and intentional. And so he tries to calm down Joab's natural feelings of guilt and just say, hey man, just, just, just win and you're going to feel better. And then he goes and he, and he gets um, Bathsheba, right? She goes through a period of grieving and he's like, all right, you're my wife now. Again, not, not exactly like a romantic, um, you know, wonderful love story here. And at a certain point, it seems like as we look at the end of this chapter that David's cool, Uriah's dead, you know, Bathsheba, she's lamented, that's fine, Joab will be okay, he'll go win another battle, and you think, okay, everything's fine. Except this last phrase here in chapter 11 says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So even if everybody else seems okay with what's going on, it's, it's reminding us that there's a, a God in heaven who sees all that we do, knows all that we are, who, who has made us for communion with him. And when we are selfish and pursue sin and, and start to have the whole world focus around us, like God, God's like, whoa, 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 you weren't built for the universe to revolve around you. You're built and made to reflect my glory, to enjoy life with me, God says. And so ultimately when we sin, it says it displeases the Lord. And I'll just be frank, like, that's not a place I want to be, right? There's times where you've hurt other people, you've sinned against other people, and we'll we'll get into that. And and yet, we have to remind ourselves that when you sin, you're also sinning against God who made everything. It, It grieves God's heart. Because sin at its heart is selfishness and rebellion. You don't want to be at the wrong side of God's displeasure. And so God's going to respond here in chapter 12. We're going to keep going. Like I said, lots of Old Testament Bible time here. Chapter 12, and the Lord sent Nathan, he was a prophet, to David, and he came to him and he said to him, there are two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor had nothing but the little one ewe lamb, which he had brought. And he brought it up and he grew it up with him and with his children, and he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup um, and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared for it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, because he had no pity. So God's displeased with David, and actually, right away, God's response is incredibly merciful to David, because he sends him a prophet in in, in Nathan to tell him kind of a parable or a story, right? A, A story of injustice, a story of harm, and David as a king, right, you know, who, who, can you believe the Bible says that David's a man after God's own heart, and yet he's done all this? 
And so, in this, David does have a sense of justice. He does still have a sense of right and wrong. And so David's like sense of justice wells up. He's like, oh, that guy needs some consequences. See, sin blinds us to easily see the sin in others while not being able to see the sin in ourselves. It makes us self-righteously cry out for justice when we see sin. And so we understand that sin is weighty and wrong when it's talked about in the context of others, but when it's us, oh man, it is all about cries for mercy, right? So here's the response from Nathan after this, verse 7 through 14. Nathan said to David, you are this man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Man, he's, I mean, that is as prophetic as it gets. You are saying this is God's decree for your life is what David says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. That was an enemy king who was seeking his life. Verse eight, and I gave you to your master's house and your master's wives and to your arms and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord and do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. It's the wicked people. And now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me. This is God speaking. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil out of your own house. I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Verse 13, and David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. There are times that secret sin leads to public shame. Secret sin leads to public shame. And David has been given uh, all he should want. I mean, I, mean like, I, I love how the word of the Lord begins with how gracious God has been to David. He's like, David, I, I saved you from Saul. David, I made you king. David, I gave you a house and, and a family. And, like, David, and if you were unsatisfied, David, you could have come to me. I am the father and author of all life and flourishing. And at my right hand, Psalm says, there are pleasures forevermore. David, if you didn't have enough, you could come to the source and I would have satisfied you. But instead, you violated my law, my words. Remember that ark that was out in the battle? In that ark would have been the Ten Commandments. And the number one is that we don't worship any other gods besides the God, the creator of all. And in this time here, it says like, it also says you're not supposed to covet, specifically your neighbor's wife. Okay, David's done that. You're not supposed to commit adultery, meaning having sex outside of marriage. David's done that. You're not supposed to commit murder. David's done that. You're not supposed to lie. <laughs> For sure, house of lies right here, right? I mean, boom, he's checked off like six, easy, out of the 10. He's like, this, this displeases the Lord. And, and, 
He says, there's gonna be consequences for this. You're gonna experience pain. Like I tell my kids when when they've walked in sin and there's times that we need to, to discipline them that sin hurts and sin has consequences. And in this case, I mean, the, the consequences are, are great. It goes out to so many different people that we'll see in just a moment. He's gonna experience pain, there, but there's not moral consequences for David. And David says, I have sinned against the Lord, and that is what ends up leading him to write Psalm 51. So there we go, part one behind the music, part two, Psalm 51. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. In the middle of your Bible, Psalm 51. This is like, like, what David's heart is for his sin, and, and, and not just his sin, but what God needs to do, what only God can do, and what God has done in cleansing and changing his heart. This is a song of confession, it's a song of salvation, and it's a song of recommissioning for new mission and purpose. So let's look at Psalm 51, verses one through six. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone to Bathsheba. Okay, right? That's how we get to that story. This is David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Hold on to that. We'll get to that in a second. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So as David recognizes that he sinned before the Lord, he he pleads for mercy. Mercy is not getting the consequences you deserve. And he pleads for mercy by appealing to God's character because he certainly can't appeal to his credentials. So at no point does this song open up like, hey God, I kinda made a mistake, had a lapse in judgment. Right, like anytime a politician does something right, they have the big press conference, please excuse my lapse in judgment, I ate inside a restaurant, and uh, that's not who I am. I don't know, you're a guy that ate inside a restaurant, that's what you do, right? Okay, that was super specific, all right. Right, so, but like, whatever it is, they always say mistake, they always say something like, um, you know, that's not my nature, character, and in this case, David doesn't appeal to his character at all. He appeals to God's character. It's not save me, I'm good and worthy. It's Lord, save me because you are good. Your love of people, he says, is steadfast. Another way to translate that is unfailing. Literally, the world is loyalty. God, you are loyal to your people. Meaning, like, when they sin, when they're faithless, you, you don't turn your back on them. So many other places in the Bible where it says, God will not forsake you. When he won't leave you, he won't leave, he won't turn his back on you. God is still present even when you're rejecting, even when you're pulling away. God's still there. He's loyal to his people. His faithfulness never fails. He says, God, I'm appealing to you because like, you have so much mercy. My sin is great, but your mercy is more. Your compassion is greater than any mountain of sin that I could have, God. 
When you're actually in a place of recognizing your sin, recognizing your brokenness, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I, I, I have like shipwrecked my entire life. In this case, like, think of what the 24-hour news cycle was in Israel during that time. I mean, you've got adultery, you've got conspiracy to murder, you've got a battle that's being lost, you've got like, like the religious leader coming up, like, like with prophets, all that stuff, like here it is, and it's like, like that would be overwhelming. He says, God, your mercy is greater than my sin. So this calls, it's a lament over sin, but even in a lament, it's not like, God, how'd you let this happen? Instead, it's, God, fix me. I'm broken. It says that in sin, I, I, I love how it describes this, because sin is disorienting and it's distressing. He knows it's his guilt, it's his fault, and that healing can only begin when he acknowledges his sin when he acknowledges his need for forgiveness. You can't be restored if you don't think you're broken. You can't be forgiven if you don't think you've sinned. You can't be made clean if you don't think you're dirty. And this is, these are all things that do characterize us, but, but in the gospel, they don't have to define us. But here in verses um, uh, two uh, and three, rather, sorry, verses one and two, it talks about the comprehensive nature of sin. There's three words listed here that I want to highlight very quickly. Number one is transgression. It's a word for sin. It means that, that God's law has been violated. You have disobeyed God's commands. You have crossed his boundaries. That's literally, that's where you get the word trespass, crossing the boundaries. It also says that there's iniquity. Iniquity is brokenness. It's the bent out of shapeness. You're like, you're like, man, I was just doing what my heart's desires were. Well, yeah, but, but we're all a little bent out of shape. We're not perfect people. Iniquity is a brokenness, a bent out of shapeness. It's, it's where you get the word perverted from. It's saying, saying you were naturally designed to be this way, but yeah, things are just a little off. It's also having wrong desires. Just because you want something doesn't make it right. And that gets to the last word, sin, which is just rejection and rebellion, just garden variety, like, I like my way, I don't like God's way. It's also missing the mark, doing something wrong, or it can also not be doing something right. I mean, in this case, right, what was David supposed to be doing this spring? Supposed to be leading his people into battle. There's a battle to be won. Evil's on the march. We're here to put that down. We're here to create and cultivate a culture of flourishing. And so even part of his sin was just not doing what he was supposed to. And how does David respond to this? I need to be clean. I know I'm not right. And he says he can't see any path forward because there's this phrase here um, that says, um, right, my sin is ever before me in verse three. Right, you can't see anything in your life but your sin. You can't see a way forward because it's so big, it's so ominous, it's not gonna go away, there's this tension, and that tension isn't always condemnation, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But sometimes you're in a place of tension over sin, and that's just simply the Holy Spirit giving you conviction. The direction you've gone is not right. The desires you've pursued are not profitable. What you've failed to, to do is advocating from what God has designed you to do. And so this isn't David's song alone, but it's for all of us when we've committed sin. And then, it's not 
trying to just live in this place of, man, God, remember my transgressions, remember my sin, my brokenness, right? No, he's also saying washing clean, right? I know my transgression, my sins have reformed me, but, but at a certain point, he's not saying, God, remember what I've done, but no, God, what can you do? Only God can forgive sin. And so we start to ask ourselves, right, when we've walked in sin, who has your sin impacted? Who hasn't been blessed because you, you're not engaging on the mission and purpose that God has for your life? Who's been harmed because you pursued a selfish desire rather than kind of cultivate some, some selflessness? And for David, right, the, the bigger your influence in life, the bigger that your sin ripples out. And so David's impact, right, is his warriors, right, not leading him, his wives not loving them, Bathsheba leading her to sin, abusing her. His servants, right, they, they, he's impacted them because they have to play run around. Uriah, for sure, right, he's dead, dead. Joab, leader of the army, how demoralizing is it to fight in a battle that you know you're supposed to lose and that, furthermore, your king wants you to lose? He's feeling guilt. He's feeling shame as an accomplice. Any of the soldiers on that suicide mission who died, they have parents, they have families, Right, they, that knock on the door came, right, with the folded up, uh, you know, not American flag, right, but you know, the folded up flag to a grateful nation. Thank you for your son's sacrifice so that our king could try to cover up his sin. It just impacts. Literally dozens and dozens of people are impacted by David's sin, maybe even the character of the whole nation, right? Yet in verse four, he's not forgetting about them. When he says this, to God, against you and you only have I sinned. Each of these people, like all the people impacted by sin, they're image bearers of God. And so when you've harmed another image bearer of God or you've sinned against an image bearer of God, that is a sin against the God whose image they bear. When you harm and sin others, it's ultimately a sin against God because he's made them. He's made them worthy of dignity and of honor and of respect. And, then, and there's this other layer of it too because as I said at the beginning, our greatest need is communion with God. And so here's David. God, I've sinned against you. I've done what is evil in your sight. My sin's ever before me. And he realizes that, that his communion with God is broken. David was called a man after God's own heart. And he realizes, oh, I'm so far from that. I'm so far from that. And then he even talks about his sin nature. I want to be clear about uh, verse 5. David's not calling out his mom and saying he was conceived in sin. He's talking about the fact that since the beginning of the story, where God made everything good, sin has entered through man's rejection and rebellion of God's law, and that has infected and impacted every single generation since. And I'm sorry, even if you're the most secular atheist, you'd be hard-pressed to make a case that there's not a generation that hasn't been impacted by sin and brokenness. And so he's just saying, hey, this is, this is part of my nature. I've sinned because I'm a sinner. He's not a sinner because he sinned. He's like, this is, this is an acknowledgement of the depth of his brokenness. And so... He's talking about the brokenness of original sin and, and rather than calling himself a victim, right? You know, God, I, just, I couldn't help it. I'm, I'm an addict of this or I just, you know, I don't know. This is how I identify now is, is as, you know, the guy that, that sleeps with the other guy's wife. Like, that's just, that's, that's just who I am. Instead, 
he says God is a God of truth and a God of life. He knows he bears individual responsibility. He's, he's not ignorant of the law. He's not like, man, I had no idea I wasn't supposed to hook up with this gal and then like lie about it and then like, you know, kill a bunch of people. I, I just didn't know. He knew. And he did it willingly. And so there's an acknowledgement that God's law is correct. And how God has designed things to be is actually right and good, regardless of whether that's what we think we want. And so this confession is of brokenness, not an excuse, but reveals the depth of the chasm between us in our sin and God in his perfection. Like that's, that's the brokenness, that's the separation that has to be fixed. It's, a, it's not just a deficiency of character, right? His sin is still his sin. And yet God is, in our sin, he is just to give us justice, I mean, whatever David suffers from this, like, I think we'd all be like, yeah, he, he, he earned that. He, he deserves that. And yet, in, even in our sin, all sin separates us from God. We can still ask for mercy. And so what that means is because all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, the verdict against you and me can't be debated. The verdict cannot be disputed, but the sentence can be. God, could you give me some mercy? Out of your abundant, meaning like so much mercy, it's not gonna run out. Could you give me some mercy? I need forgiveness. I need to be restored. And he talks about what that restoration looks like in verses seven through 12. He says this. This is what he wants God to do. He's, he's acknowledged his sin. He's, he's right about God's law. He's humble. He's like, I need to be clean. I need to be forgiven. I need to be fixed. And he says this, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit or steadfast or loyal spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Three quick things that David's asking to do. Number one, he's asking to be forgiven and clean in verses seven and eight. Purge with hyssop is this, it doesn't really translate for us, but it's a ceremonial act that the priests would do um, uh, to say that you used to have leprosy, you've been healed from leprosy, meaning like you're no longer unclean, or or if you touched a dead body, you'd have this, they would purge you with hyssop, and then, okay, you are now clean to reenter society. You've done your 14-day quarantine, you've been tested, now you can go, right? So he's saying, "Make, make me clean, I'm dirty, make me clean. I've been defiled by sin, and what that does is it separated him from community, right? Anybody wanna be like on David's advisory team after this? Anyone wanna go to another barbecue? Anybody wanna sign up to be one of David's mighty men again if this is how he treats you? There's a break in community. He's outside the camp in some regards. He wants true community, and so when he says, purge me with hyssop, it's like, de-sin me. Right, like de-louse me, right? When, the, when you get that call from the school, oh, so-and-so has lice, and you're like, you know, it's just terrifying. I have five girls, so much hair, right? Clean is not just a ceremonial sense, but he says, give me a righteousness that is pure as fresh snow. 
He's like, don't just make me not dirty. Make me so clean that I'm pristine. God, be my priest that declares me free from sin. Clean and wash and produce a renewal of joy. We've been exiled, God, but now we're being wrecked, like, like, like brought back, it says, with joy and gladness. Number two, God breaks to heal. He's disciplined and healed. He's like, he's like recognizing that, like I said, sin hurts and sin has consequences. There's discipline and brokenness for the purpose of healing and restoration. The bones that you have broken, he said, are no longer gonna wail against and crack, but they're gonna sing for correction. Um, we, we had uh, friends of ours growing up, they had two daughters um, who both sets of their legs were like out of joint, and so they actually had to go through a process where, where when they were like five, six, seven years old, where their legs were broken by a doctor, like on purpose, to be healed so that when they were older, they could walk well and upright, right? Think about like right, Forrest Gump, right, when he had the braces when he's younger. He's like, God, you broke me to build me up. You broke me to, to make me better. You broke me so that I could, could be healed and restored and walk unhindered from that iniquity and that brokenness. There are enduring consequences for sin in our lifetime. Right? David suffers. His family suffers. But there's also forgiveness and restoration. And he says, forgive me my rebellion, fix my brokenness, blot out my sin, remove my guilt, and remove any memory of it. And then he says this in verses 10 through 12. He's saying, make me a new, renewed creation, make me a new creation, and God, renew your presence. Create, it says, a new heart. Like, don't just, don't just patch up the old one. Like, hey, God, I, I know my heart well enough that if you don't do some massive change in it, I'm probably gonna keep pursuing this. Ezekiel talks about how what the Holy Spirit does is removes a heart of stone from us and then replaces a heart of flesh that beats for God. So he's saying, God, if I'm gonna walk in new life, if I'm gonna be truly forgiven, then it can't just be I get healthier and better. God, you have got to do something. You've gotta do heart surgery on me Make me new. And the restoration that he desires is God's presence. Restore me the joy and salvation. Uphold with me a willing spirit, right? Cast me not away from your presence. He's like, hey, the worst part of this sin, God, is the shame I feel distances me from you. God, what I need most is communion with you. And so, Holy Spirit, Create and renew a right or steadfast spirit within me. God, let me be empowered by you because when I follow myself, it does not lead to anything good. Make me clean by your work so that we can walk out a new life of repentance. We live with Holy Spirit endurance. We cannot fix ourselves. Only God can. We need his divine intervention and renewed life and, and what God's renewed life does, when we've humbled ourselves, when God's performed that surgery, like the prayer he's asking, like, like if that's where you're at, if you're coming in and you're like, Man, I, I feel like God's distant, I don't even know if God's real, like I, I, you know, I, I have shame and I'm sure I've done something wrong, like yeah, you probably have, right? Like you know, you have, we all have sin. And if where you're at is a place of humility and your prayer is, God, fix me? He's already appealed to the God of abundant mercy. So you pray out, God, fix me. God will fix you. 
God changes. God makes new. And I'll tell you, like, you're not going to be perfect right away. In fact, you're not going to be perfect in this lifetime, but you're going to be loved. You're going to be accepted. You're going to be renewed. God's not far from you. And then not only that, after he's made you clean and made you new, he's not like, okay, you're, you're all fine now. Go, go, go live your life. No, he actually gives you a new and renewed purpose. And that's these last verses as we close. Last verses, 13 through 19. After his humility, after God's working to clean, verses 13 through 19 say this, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Verse 19, do good to Zion, that's the city of God's people, in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and in burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. If you have acknowledged your sin and your need for God, if you've come to God asking to be renewed, asking to be changed, trusting him as, as your savior and wanting to follow him as your king, then he's given you that renewed heart. Like if that's a desire you even have in your heart at all, that's the Holy Spirit at work in you. Communion with God will lead to a recommissioning for mission. No matter what you've done or what has been done to you, God is not done with you. Your story is not over. And he has a chapter for you. Before eternity with him and his people, he has a chapter for you right here and right now. And it's to be on mission. To tell other people. To to make disciples of all nations, right? To to teach them God's law, but also more than that, to teach them where salvation and forgiveness come. To teach them about the one who's followed the law perfectly. That's Jesus. To, To teach sinners that their sin's been dealt with by Jesus on the cross in their place. That sin does not have the final word in your life. Mercy does. Your story's not one where you're defined by your sin, but you're transformed by his grace. And so you have a new chapter. Yes, sin has consequences, but mercy has consequences too. Right? You've received God's mercy. You've received God's grace. That, that is for a purpose to share good news. Yes, sin hurts. When we've sinned, when we walk in sin, it hurts. When others sin around us, it hurts. When others have sinned against us, it hurts. But God's grace heals, soothes, reshapes, renews so that we can be people who teach and evangelize, meaning give good news, teach sinners God's way, share the gospel, because you care about other people, because, because you've been forgiven. I know their pain. Hey, I know your pain. I know your shame, because I felt it too. And I have good news for you. There's healing and there's hope. You're not gonna be defined by your sin. But instead, you're going to be defined by Jesus' righteousness, his rightness, his goodness in your place. Jesus is not just our example. Yes, he is. But he is our substitute. 
He has suffered for our sin. The reason God can forgive us and still be just is because God's justice against sin has been poured out on Jesus so that we get to receive mercy. We get to enjoy grace, not because of anything we did, but because God did it. And he says the result of this is a joy in our salvation. That our sin grieves us. Our salvation in Jesus leads us to joy where shame shuts our mouth and tells us, be quiet, you're not worthy. Salvation opens our mouth to sing of how good God is and to declare, meaning remind people what's true. I am not a sinner. I am saved by the grace and mercy of God. Like that is our identity in Christ. We haven't helped us. Like we all sin. None of us are perfect. But if you're in Christ, your identity is adopted son of the king. It's not transgressor or rebel. It's citizen and saint. One who worships. God's greatest concern. How sin has impacted us has been removed we are silent with shame. We open our mouths to sing because we're free again. And this all comes from a place of humility. It says, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. So there's something in you that says, hey, the way you're gonna get out of this sin issue, I mean, you worked really hard to cover it up. You're gonna have to work really hard to get out of it. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus' work in our place. That's what we say, saved by Jesus' work. The work to deal with your sin's been done. When we take communion here in a moment, if you're a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, we invite you to come forward at the end of this sermon uh, as we're singing and to remember Jesus' body broken for you, blood shed for you. That's the work Jesus did. That's the consequences for your sin. And, and as you come forward, it, I mean, examine yourself, yes. Come with humility, but come with joy of the work's been done for you. Come and receive salvation. Enjoy renewal. Yeah, God has been just, but his justice has been poured out on Jesus, right? We, we hate injustice. In, in this story, right, it says David's gonna lose his son. His son didn't do anything. Well, in the gospel, God gives his innocent son so that sinners can go free as a sacrifice. God doesn't delight in our sacrifices because we're just imperfect, but he delights in his son Jesus, and Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And then finally, it creates a new community. He says, Zion, Jerusalem, like, like city of God's people. When you've been saved as an individual, you're brought into a new community made of people who know, yeah, the severity of our sin, sure. Like, let's just acknowledge that, right? Can we just acknowledge, like, we're, like we have sin? We're not perfect? But as much as we meditate on the severity of sin, I pray that we would meditate on the grace and mercy of God as well. And again, remember, that's what defines you. That's the power you get to walk in. Yeah, you, 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 sure, your bones are broken, but he's healing you. He's made you new. He's making you new. And in all of that, it's so that we can bring God's glory and experience joy. When we don't focus on our sin, but we simply trust Jesus.